Mark chapter 8 verse 31 to chapter 9 verse 29. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could reach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must have suffered much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, 
said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Well, hi, it's great to have you watching today. I'll have my welcome to the one that's been given before. I'm Morris. I'm one of the leaders at Christ Church. And one of my jobs is week by week to open up the Bible to people in church, see what we find in it, apply it to our lives. I'm just going to give you a moment if you need to settle your children, if you need to get a drink, and particularly if you haven't got a Bible open or on your phone, we're looking at quite a big bit of Mark's Gospel today and it'll be much easier for you to follow along if you follow along the Bible. So I want to encourage you to do that. While you're getting that uh, all ready, just a reminder, we've been looking at Mark's Gospel and our series is called Recaptivated. And our hope is that if you're a Christian, you'll find yourself just seeing how amazing Jesus is again. And if you're not a Christian, that he will draw you in and show you just um, his glory, his, his amazingness, why Christians think he's so brilliant. And so we're looking at this, Mark's Gospel, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. <clears throat> now, hopefully you're settled in. I want to begin by talking about epidemiology, which everybody's talking about at the moment. Epidemiology was probably a word many of us had hardly ever even heard of a couple of months ago. In case you're still not sure, it's the study of how diseases spread in populations and therefore is a growth industry at the moment. Well, from a few short weeks ago, the word hardly being known, here's an interesting thing that's happened now. If you log on to Twitter, everyone's an epidemiologist. Honestly, I don't know how they deal with it, but you find these people who genuinely are epidemiologists, who work their whole lives to get to the top of their field, saying something publicly about coronavirus, and suddenly all sorts of people are weighing in to say they're wrong, they've made mistakes in the data, their graphs aren't right. Then you click through to see who's making that comment, and it's like the writer of the celebrity news column from the Daily Mail or something like that. Everyone's an armchair epidemiologist now. Maybe if they were face to face with the person in authority, they'd feel a bit more scared to display their ignorance, but maybe not. Because Peter, in our story today, he didn't feel embarrassed about that. Now, just before the passage we had read today, Jesus has been asking the disciples, this group of people who've been following him about for a couple of years, who do the people say that I am? And the people have made the suggestion of a prophet or even someone who's come back from the dead. Worth noting that no one at the time who met Jesus thought what lots of people think today, which was he was a really great moral teacher. Nobody said he was just another rabbi. So if you tuned in today and that's what you think of Jesus, your study of history isn't really doing the facts justice there because no one really thought that at the time. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, here's the most important question. Who do you say that I am. I hope you can think about that question. 
who do you, person listening to this, who do you think Jesus is? And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, has replied with this incredibly loaded title. He says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ. It's like saying, you are the person all of history has been waiting for to bring us back to God. So in terms of being an expert in a particular field, this is the best title you can have, the Messiah. We say today, don't we, this person has a Messiah complex. They think they can save people from stuff that people can't save themselves from. Jesus doesn't have a Messiah complex. He is actually the Messiah, the one who can save people from things they can't save themselves from. Peter has said to him, Jesus, you are the only one, the only one with authority to tell us what to do. You're our only hope, the Messiah. You are the only expert. And yet a few verses later, when Jesus is explaining what being a Messiah means, as we saw today in the reading, Peter takes him aside and starts to tell him that he's wrong. See what he says? You're in charge, but you're not. So here's the first thing we see, self-in-charge, the Peter way. We've seen in Mark's Gospel that Jesus entering this world has been like the author of the story entering the story. He's not limited in the ways that all of us are limited in this world. He bends and breaks and rewrites what's possible because it's his story. He is the God who made this world we live in. But what story is he telling? As soon as Peter makes his revelation that Jesus is this ruling, saving figure, he tells them in verse 31 and onwards that Jesus, he must suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise again. Jesus explains that to his disciples. They're all like, "Uh, hold on, (laughs) this is not the story we were wanting you to write. The story we had in place for our Messiah was that he would conquer our enemies, that he would put everything right in a blaze of glory. And as becomes clear actually over the next few chapters, his disciples were definitely thinking, as Jesus gets the glory, we and his coattails will get a bit of the greatness too. A Messiah who suffers and dies and is rejected, not quite in the vein we were hoping for, Jesus. And so it says in verse um, 32, Peter took him aside. I love that. Peter goes, um, Jesus, uh, could I just have a little uh, word with you outside the room? Yeah, just out here. Thanks. A little word in your shell. Not the type of Messiah we were hoping for, really. So if you could just change the programme back to what we were hoping for, that'd be great. He's like the celebrity journalist with the epidemiologist. You know, what do you know about saving the world, Jesus? You just need to take a few lessons from me. You're in charge, Jesus, but only if you're in charge the way I want you to be in charge. And Jesus replies with, I guess, the strongest possible response in verse 33. He says, get behind me, get away from me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
You see, here is the truth about the God who is embodied in Jesus, the real God. He is not into asserting his greatness in order to get power and respect and authority from others. And that means he is definitely not about getting an in-group together who can use his authority to assert their own authority. No, his determination, the God, the real God we see in Jesus, is that he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed. He became a human being so that he could further humble himself, not so that he could manoeuvre himself into getting all the praise. The real God took the side and entered into the story of victims. The Messiah saving us, he was bringing in that salvation, was not achieved by making some people victims and some people victors. Now, plenty of Christians across the ages have made Peter's mistake. They've said, yeah, 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 Jesus, uh, we are very interested in the Messiah thing. Well done, we do need a Messiah. We're just not that interested in listening to you um, and what you've got to say. I remember back in the early years of reality TV when I was just leaving university, on one of the first reality TV, TV programmes, there was a woman on it who was apparently a Christian. Some Christians very excited by that. Oh, wow, a Christian in the media. Of course, she'd only been there a few uh, days when she said, well, being a Christian just means um, I pray and I believe in God, but doesn't really have any effect on how I live my life. Doesn't stop me doing anything or make me do, any, do anything. See that? Jesus, he's the king, but he's not really the king. There are plenty of Christians across the ages who've adopted Jesus as a Messiah who died for people, as a mascot for killing people, <laughs> led armies in Jesus' name to conquer others. There'll be the person watching this who says, oh yeah, I do believe this about Jesus. I'm just not totally committing myself at the moment to do what he says in every area of my life. We all play Peter's game with Jesus. We ignore the things Jesus says that don't fit in with what we want. Or we try and co-opt him into the things we would like to do. There's me and what I want to do with my life and Jesus can kind of fit in with that. You see, it's Peter's thing. Oh yes, he's the Christ, he's Messiah. Except he's not really. I'm still in charge. I'm still ruling my life. That's one thing we like to do, which is take this amazing act of love, this self-sacrificing, this self-giving, and use it for some other agenda. Now the God who's in heaven, the God we see in Jesus, his only agenda is to serve people by dying for them, to bring people back to God. But sometimes that's not ours. We say, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is Messiah, but I don't really want to do what he says. Jesus says, that's, that's evil, it's from Satan. So if you sign up to truths about Jesus, but you're resistant to letting him influence big parts of your life, you've got to be very careful. If you're not presenting the humble, suffering Jesus to people, and you're not following him in that model, you're not presenting 
and living in trust of the real Messiah. The only way to let the Messiah be your Messiah, the only way to let the king to be your king, is to deny yourself for him to be in charge. And that's the next thing we see. Denying self the Jesus way. One of the most powerful figures in literature is Smeagol from the epic novel Lord of the Rings. Smeagol is obsessed with the ring, his precious, and he can't bear to let it go. The ring is his life. But this twisted obsession with the ring turns him into a half-creature, broken and wicked and all wrong. He was attempting to save his life, the ring that matters to him so much. But in attempting to do that, he lost his life, who he was, altogether. That's like a strong picture of what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. If you want the life where, you know, Jesus might be the Messiah, but you still call the shots, it's still your life. What matters to you is central to all your decisions. If you want to save that life, you'll lose your life in the end. You'll lose it because Jesus actually is the Messiah. He is the saviour figure. Trusting, giving your life to him is the only way we can be saved and be right with God. So if you really want to resist doing that and just hold on to your own life, well, you'll lose your life in the end. It's also true, I think, in a wider sense, in a sense we see in life at the moment, that people who want to hold on to the life where they're at the centre, they don't live a good life. They bring hurt and harm and bad stuff to the world. We may not like the idea of self-denial, but we really don't like people who are selfish. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. And if you're holding on to things, yes, but I can't let Jesus be in charge of this. Jesus says these stark, austere words. What good does it do to gain everything but lose your soul? What good does it do to have protected something from Jesus' influence, lived the way you wanted to, Travelled everywhere, done everything, got everything you wanted. If in the end you lose the saving of your soul that only Jesus offers. To be honest, there's a few people who call themselves Christians who need to hear those words. People who say, yeah, 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 Jesus is the Messiah, I believe the Bible. But know that their commitment to something they want, a particular job or relationship, holding on to that means they're losing hold, their trust in Jesus to save them. And if there's something like that for you at this moment, I want to ask you, what good does it do to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Jesus quickly turns to the topic of being ashamed of him because that's where this often plays out. If you are ashamed of me now, he says, you'll find I'm ashamed of you one day when I return to judge the world. What's a sign? We might work this out. How can I tell if I, Jesus is in charge of my life or not? 
How do I know if I'm still holding on to the wrong things that I have in mind the things of men, not the things of God? How would I know? What's a sign I'm adapting Jesus to my life plans rather than submitting to his? What's a sign that I'm more interested in this life than the life Jesus is offering? Well, here's a sign. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Not once, not you know, backed out of talking when you could have once, but as a pattern of your life, you don't really like talking about Jesus much. You're embarrassed of him. You don't really want other people to come to trust him. Well, then it seems you don't really believe he's the Messiah, do you? And it shows, I think, you're holding on to respect and honour from others in this life that in the end you'll lose if you don't turn and trust to Jesus. There's a great group of people in our church at the morning, uh, at the moment, um, running a course called Exploring Christianity on Zoom uh, for people who want to ask questions about the Christian faith. And you might have seen our stuff in social media or emails saying, why don't you invite someone along to that. Now can I say first, if you are listening to this and you are thinking, how could Jesus possibly be saying these things? Could they be true? Exploring Christianity is a great place to come and ask those questions and the link is down here beneath me on your screen to join in. But there are people who say they believe in Jesus being the Messiah, like Peter, but they're basically allergic to the idea of inviting anyone to exploring Christianity ever. No, might be. Time doesn't suit you. Or you prefer to study the Bible one-to-one -one with a friend who isn't a Christian. But maybe there's a time for some honest self-reflection that this call to invite people to things brings on us. It might be you would never in a million years think of inviting someone to come along and hear about Jesus because you're ashamed of Jesus. You're ashamed of the things that he says. You'd actually rather not be put in a position where you have to talk about him. And if that is you, there is a risk that you are just saying the word Messiah, but not actually letting Jesus rule your life. Now there's no need to be depressed, because if you read the rest of the gospel, you discover Peter gets this wrong continually. He gets millions of chances but if you are, in your heart of hearts, a bit ashamed to talk about Jesus to people who need his saving power, that might be something you need to sort out with the Lord. Someone asked me this phrase, to deny yourself. Does it mean every single thing we desire is wrong? I don't think so. It's not wrong for, at this moment, me to be looking forward to having a cup of tea after this and to desire it enough to go make the tea, I don't think. No, denying yourself means an approach to Jesus that says, Jesus, you're in charge. There's no limit to your influence over my life. What I most want is not the defining factor about what I do anymore. I'm denying myself. You're the Messiah. And that is self-denial, isn't it? Putting Jesus in charge of our lives every day. It is carrying a cross. It's a battle each day for me. You might find this surprising seeing as I'm a pastor, but each day it is a big battle for me to try and submit to Jesus and not put what I want at the center of what I decide to do. 
But let me tell you some things that help me. I don't want to become Smeagol. I don't want to hold on to things and lose my life in the end. Or here's something else that helps. The one who's in charge that I'm putting in charge is the one who suffers and dies and lowers himself to be rejected for the sake of others. This is the type of person I want to be in charge of my life. There's some song words we sometimes sing about him. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. I, I can do with giving my life over to someone like that. But here's something else that helps me. The third thing we see in the passage today. Glorifying Jesus is the best way. It's hard to imagine what type of crisis the disciples must have been in about Jesus at this moment. Not only had he disappointed all of their hopes, he'd used that opportunity to call one of them Satan and then give them a sermon about denying themselves and not being ashamed of doing lots of other tough things. I wonder if that's why he chose this moment to do what happens next. So he takes three of the disciples and just for a moment they see not Jesus the human being simply, but Jesus' glory as the eternal Son of God revealed. They see him talking in chapter 9 verse 4 with Moses and Elijah who are heroes of the Bible. It's his way of saying, I am the God of all the history that you know. Now they're so scared by seeing Jesus in this way they don't know what to do. Peter says, let's build a temple here, as in a place where we can just stay and worship Jesus. As soon as he says that, a voice comes from the cloud, God's voice, and speaks and says, this is my son, who I love, listen to him. As an aside, something Christians could do with taking seriously. If you see Jesus is glorious, then actually living out and doing what he says is much more important than building him an impressive cathedral to worship him in. God is much more interested in us listening to Jesus in our everyday lives than building beautiful places for us to come and worship him. I think it's just as the rug has been pulled from underneath them. Jesus is the, a suffering Messiah. We are going to have to walk that road too if he's really going to be in charge. Oh, did I really want to do this? Maybe that's how you're feeling. Here's the reminder. Jesus is the beautiful, glorious, eternal son of God. He is the one that the God who made everything points to and says, listen to him. Now, as they're coming down the mountain, they have this discussion about Elijah. It may not have been clear to you what is going on as we read it, but it's really the disciples having another go at trying to avoid the suffering bit of the gig. They basically say to Jesus, isn't it true, doesn't the Old Testament say that Elijah's going to come back and make everything perfect again? It's basically them saying, could we just have that prophecy where he sorts it out? We don't have to do the suffering bit. Jesus says, that's true, guys, but the Old Testament also says the Son of Man, which is him, will suffer and die. How does that make sense? Here's how it makes sense. He says that Elijah, the Elijah figure in Mark's gospel, was Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, who's already had his head chopped off. 
for talking the truth. There is one model here. The way it all works is that the figures who show God to the world, the people you should listen to, the people who bring God's kingdom, they're the ones who humbly lower themselves to suffer for the sake of others. The only way there, therefore, is to follow Jesus and to do that work after him is for me to deny myself and pick up my cross. That's how this thing moves forward for Jesus, for John the Baptist, and for us. Here's the remarkable, the amazing, I guess the sort of worship-inspiring thing about Jesus. This passage shows us he has, by rights, all of the bright glory there is in the universe. God himself says, I love him. Listen to him. Every authority is available to him that someone could possibly have, but his character, his glory is seen in his laying down his life. Loving others enough to die for them, to bring them back to God. We talked about how we're sometimes tempted to be ashamed of Jesus, but when we see him like that, I find myself thinking... There's no reason I wouldn't want my life to point to him when he's like that. There's no reason I would put myself in the centre and avoid talking about him when he's so amazing to be like that. So, if Jesus is in charge, if he's the Messiah, it's evil. It's satanic, he says, for me to say, I know better than you. It's wrong for me to say, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus. just doesn't make much difference to my life. No, Jesus says, if he is the Messiah, following him is going to mean denying yourself because he's in charge. It is going to mean not letting what you want drive your life, but advertising him to the world being the driver of your life. You can't hold on to the ring and have the freedom of life without the ring. But why wouldn't you want to do that with your life? Why wouldn't we? He's so glorious. That moment where the disciples saw him beyond him as a human being to God's glowing, eternal son. Those words of his father expressing the love they have shared even from eternity. That eternal son lowering himself to rejection and death at the hands of people he made to save us. Why wouldn't you want your life and your words to honour and elevate him? And if you really don't want that to be the pattern of your life, you haven't got it. You're saying the words you are the Messiah, but you're taking Jesus aside to say, I know a little bit better than you. There'll be people watching today who've never answered Jesus' question for themselves. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one you need to save you? Well, maybe time to answer that question. There will be people watching today whose hearts are singing, as we've looked at Mark's Gospel, who are convinced, who are blown away, who say, yes, I want to serve Jesus for his glory. I want the world to know about his beautiful, amazing actions for us. 
But I guess there will be plenty of people watching who, like Peter, are signed up to Jesus' identity. But the pattern of our life is not denying ourselves so that Jesus can be known. No, the pattern of our life is, I will get the things I want, put those first, stack them up, and then see how Jesus fits in. And Jesus says, listen, <laughs> that is not how it works. If he is the Messiah, he is in charge. He can't be anything except central. He is God's beloved son. The only option is to listen to him. And if you're quietly building up everything you want, hoping no one will notice that you're actually a bit ashamed of Jesus, that you don't want any of this disrupted so that he can be made known, well, be very careful. You could save that life only to lose that much more important life. And Jesus called us to say he is the Messiah, he's the Christ. So lose that life for Jesus and the spread of the gospel and you'll save this one. Nothing you are getting and building up for yourself while you're pretending to trust Jesus, none of that in the end will be any good to save your soul. So I think the call of us who are seeking to be recaptivated by Jesus today, the call to us is to examine our lives, to work out what needs to be lost. And if you realise something that's really important to you is stopping you pointing to Jesus, an attitude, a job, a person, it's so hard to get rid of these things, but look at him, that glorious, serving, humble son, and listen to him. You know, the last few weeks, we've never had a better time to look at all the things we thought were important and to see that they're not actually any really good for saving us. But here is someone who's good for saving us. A Messiah who serves. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for all your good gifts to us and especially for your Son, who is our Messiah, and we pray for our help to listen to him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.